I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-host is Mike Philbrick, CEO of Resolve Asset Management, SEZC. Our guests today are Dave Nadig, Chief Investment Officer at ETF Database and ETF Trends, and Tim Nash of Good Investing. This is Episode 2 of Raise Your Average. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. So welcome everyone. Welcome Dave Nadig. Welcome Tim Nash. It's really awesome to have you guys on. The plan for today's discussion is to dig into all things in the realm of ESG investing. You guys are both tremendous authorities on this subject. And I, I think maybe the best way to kick it off, Dave, you're the CIO at ETF Database and ETF Trends. Why don't you tell us for the benefit of uh, those who are listening, watching, a little bit about your background and, and what uh, you're up sure. to these so, days. Um, so background wise, I started in the ETF business back in 1992. Uh, before there were ETFs, I was at uh, Barclays Global Investors back then. Uh, and watched the launch of SPY in 93 and then worked on the team that launched in 94, 95, what became the World Equity Benchmark Shares, which then eventually, after many mergers and acquisitions and growth plans and rebrandings, became iShares, uh, which folks know today. And, and most of those country funds are still trading as iShares country funds. But along the way, I've been an active mutual fund manager. I was really terrible at that. Nobody should hire me to figure out what tech stocks to buy. Uh, and uh, and then came over to join uh, ETF.com sort of uh, around 2009, uh, and then was there for a period of time, built a data business, uh, eventually came became the CEO of ETF.com, and then moved over in January this last this year, I guess still, uh, to ETF Trends and ETF Database uh, to sort of build out the offering there. So that's, that's sort of my basic background. That's great. How about you, Tim? Um, yeah, so I grew up with my dad in the investment industry. Um, so I kind of grew up in stocks and bonds and always had a good head for it. I studied economics and philosophy in my undergrad. So I was kind of the weirdo in each of those faculties. Um, and really, I would say that, that as I was studying the, our economic models, you know, really my spidey sense was tingling. It just felt like there was something off. Um, I did a little bit of travel. I did an exchange to New Zealand where I learned about triple bottom line economics for the first time. This idea of people, planet, profit and light bulbs just went off in my head that this was really the gap in the marketplace that economic models were just dismissing social and environmental issues as quote unquote externalities. Uh, went back to my fourth year uh, economics department full of questions and they didn't have answers for me. Uh, so I graduated with my BA in economics, and then I went to Sweden, where I did my master's in sustainability. And this was back in 2007, 2008, when before, you know, sustainability really was sort of the buzzword that it is today. Um, but that's where I learned systems thinking, and I learned engineering for a sustainable society, all these different green technologies. And I did my thesis, looking at socially responsible investment. Um, and right away, what we found right off the bat is that everybody automatically assumed lower financial returns, like right off the bat, that was the sort of, you know, automatic assumption. So we did our thesis looking at the financial materiality of ESG risks. 
and really looking at this through a lens, uh, not only of sort of a, a risk assessment, but also really through this lens of financial materiality. And what we found is that really there's no need to sacrifice returns. And in fact, I would argue that, you know, with macro trends going the way they are, that there is opportunity to identify uh, uh, mispriced assets and actually get ahead of some of these curves here. So for me, it really exciting. Um, graduated in July great, of 2008, great timing. ready to take the investment <laughs> world by storm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Just couldn't have timed it better. And at that point, you know, with that crash, sustainability really got thrown on the back burner. Like it was really like, let's fix the economy and then we'll worry about these social environmental issues. So no one was willing to give me a job uh, working in this field. So uh, I created my own and, uh, you know, I've been at it for about 10 or 12 years, tried a few different business models um, that, that didn't succeed as well. Uh, taught economics for a little while at my local community college. And then probably about four years ago, really jumped into this idea of fee for service financial planning. So I spend my days helping regular people, you know, I'm super retail focused. I charge on a sliding scale to try to make it affordable and accessible. And what I do is I teach people how to invest their own money online according to their values. Uh, what this means is that I'm really up to speed in terms of all the different uh, ESG ETFs that are out there and really understanding, you know, how you can fit them together uh, in a portfolio really across a broad range of spectrums or sort of definitions of sustainability. Excellent. That's fantastic. Yeah. Excellent. So I think I think those insights are going to be I think particularly useful today as we as we delve into the uh, alphabet soup of SRI, ESG, and uh, ABC, and and help um, both advisors and allocators um, identify with the end client or board, understand what they want, how how can they incorporate this, how can they educate and teach and um, and and sort of pass on the knowledge so that these investors can make the smart decisions, the right decisions, the decisions that are, are in alignment with the, with the values that they're trying to express. And it, it seems it certainly has been a, a ripper of a year in growth in this space. And I, I, maybe I'll throw it over to you, Dave, to just give us a, a sense of, of what the flows have been like in this particular area uh, for a number of reasons. And, and please, by all means, speculate as much as you want on why uh, why you think we've seen sure, these, and these with the giant well. caveat that this is really coming from an American lens. That's the market I tend to spend almost all of my time covering. As much as I have a love affair with the Canadian ETF market, because uh, the OSC tends to be the forebearer of everything interesting that happens in the U.S. Uh, but in this case, I think the ETFs leading on the flows side a little bit, just to put some context in it. If you look at all ETFs and mutual funds in the US and you go back 10 years, we had about 120, 115 billion in all in ESG related packaged products. Now, of course, there was a lot more money invested along ESG guidelines, but that was in separate accounts, institutional funds, et cetera. Um, so leaving that aside, we've gone from that 120 about 10 years ago to about 1.6 trillion now in the US in identifiable packaged products. And historically, most of that money has gone into mutual funds, a lot of it through 401k or defined contribution plans uh, here in the US. Uh, but this year in particular, and really going back to sort of mid-2019, has been the growth hockey stick curve for ETFs in the space. Uh, so we went into the beginning of 2020 uh, with about $25, $30 billion in assets. We're going to leave this year with about 65. Most of that's organic flow. So about 35, 37 billion in organic flow into the ETF space. 
And that really kicked in in the beginning of last year. So if you look at a chart of AUM growth, you'll see absolutely nothing. And then sort of a kick up in 19 and then Katie bar the door for 2020. Um, and, and I think there are a couple of reasons for it. They're, they're obviously big long-term drivers of e ESG adoption. A big one is the transfer of wealth from the baby boom generation down into maybe younger Gen Xers, older millennials. Uh, and that's something we do hear from advisors almost weekly when we talk to them about you know ESG and whether it's something they're interested in. A lot of older advisors in the US aren't actually all that interested, but their clients are making them interested whether they want to be or not. Uh, so most big advisory firms in the US, whether they're wirehouse and sort of traditional broker oriented or whether they're independent, now have some sort of ESG sleeve, whether it's a key part of their practice or whether it's just sort of an also ran and they've, they've just sort of done the, the minimum they can to get through a meeting when somebody brings up ESG. Uh, so that, I think there is that pressure, but I think it's also worth pointing out that, you know, to, to Tim's point earlier about the, that belief that you have to sacrifice returns, I think March and April did, did a pretty good job of putting a nail in that coffin because what you found is many, not all, but many ESG products kept their clients out of trouble in March and April. Some of that was just underweighting energy, fine, but a lot of it was actually really longer term stuff, right? A lot of the stuff we saw about this K-shaped recovery where certain winners and certain losers were really obvious to everybody, a lot of those winners are companies that, you know, whether it's causal or not, doesn't really matter, happen to score really well in most DSG methodologies. Love that. Now, um, so we talked a little bit, or I mentioned a little bit, the, the alphabet soup of, of ESG. I wonder, Tim, if I could throw it over you to kind of cover the continuum of, you know, values-based versus ESG integration versus impact investing, and maybe sort of give everybody some insight into sure. what these, these columns or the, these different areas mean so that they can sort of identify from a values basis of how they might want to integrate some or all of these. Yeah, so uh, uh, the lack of a common taxonomy is something that has really hurt, I think, the sort of growth and development uh, in this space, that it's just, it's very tricky to communicate, you know, before any of this stuff. And then you throw in a lot of language and, you know, with overlap and, and miscommunication, and it becomes challenging pretty quick. So let me kind of try to map it out. I'll okay. do my best here. It's not perfect. I know that yeah. this is my approach that, you know, I think everyone kind of has their own spin, but, you know, obviously I've been doing this for a little while. So um, really for me, the umbrella term is this idea of sustainable investing, that that to me is sort of the broadest, just like kind of the biggest there. Um, from there, I would say you have the different uh, uh, approaches. The language that I use is that I break it up between what I call doing less evil versus doing more good. And to me, these are very, very different approaches that often get lumped together. And I think it's really problematic for benchmarking, really for everything, that I kind of like to keep them a little bit aside. The doing less evil piece, this would have had its foundations in ethical investing, where you often have what are called like negative screens, you know, where we want to get rid of the sin stocks of sort of alcohol, tobacco, weapons, etc., now, I would say the biggest part piece of that is fossil fuel divestment, that that is just, you know, really, I think, eclipsed in terms of demand. I know a lot of people that are fine owning, you know, alcohol companies, right? But it's like, they'll be damned if they're going to own, you know, uh, uh, one share of a fossil fuel extractive company. Uh, from there, also in that doing less evil, you have this notion of ESG integration. Um, so this is where, you know, environmental, social governance analysis, to me, ESG is sort of like a code word for, 
sustainability analysis, where companies are now reporting on this uh, uh, ESG data. Investors are then taking that data, doing scoring, doing different comparing versus benchmarks. Again, this piece is tricky because there is no consensus around ESG and what this means. So the two largest firms are MSCI, um, and Sustainalytics, and Sustainalytics just got bought by Morningstar. So really it's MSCI and, and Morningstar, and that they use very different approaches. And I'll often look up a company that scores very differently on both of them. So, you know, it's not something I wanna say is like a broad base, like there's one definitive ESG score. Uh, this is something that's evolving. This is something that's changing where there is some nuance there. Personally, I like the diversification that, you know, I know sort of what to go to uh, a Morningstar for and what to go to MSCI for, but I understand that can be a little bit tricky for advisors, you know, and, and really, I think you almost have to pick one and sort of roll with that um, unless you're willing to, to, to play in the weeds a little bit. Um, and then from there, also in this doing less evil approach is this notion of shareholder engagement. So this is the idea that, you know, okay, uh, there might be some companies in here that I don't love. I kind of need to like hold my nose and invest in these because, you know, it might not be perfect, but at least the fund companies are engaging with the companies, pushing them in a more sustainable direction, uh, using proxy voting guidelines to ensure that the investors who care about these issues are voting for measures that encourage things like, uh, you know, diversity in senior management, the board of directors, stay on pay, executive compensation, reporting around you know, worker safety and uh, emissions, things like that. So, you know, really that's an area where, you know, again, there's a wide spectrum. From there, I would sort of shift over to what I call the doing more good, where most of this, certainly in the ETF space, would be around what we would call thematic investments. Uh, these are going to be investment things like clean tech, renewable energy, water infrastructure. You know, there's an ETF linked to the sustainable development goals. There's, you know, a whole bunch of these different sort of thematics. These are all completely different with the very different risk return profiles. Each one is so unique. Uh, but also, I would say this is the piece that's really popped in 2020. Like the ESG, the doing less evil stuff, there was like right. marginal outperformance, like strong correlation, and then like, you know, a little bit of outperformance there. But it's in the thematic piece where like, you know, ICLN, you know, global clean energy doubled, mm -hmm. you know, TAN, which is a solar ETF doubled, <laughs> you know, really anything with Tesla in it yeah. at a significant weighting performed very well in 2020. So, you know, this really is, you know, I think accounts for a lot of the, the buzz and the, the sort of pop in 2020. But to me, it's so completely different from the sort of doing less evil, the more sort of ESG approach. And I'll be clear that a lot of these uh, uh, thematic funds actually don't incorporate ESG data. So, you know, you have to be really careful here with, you know, sort of the language and how we're doing that. And then the piece that I get the most excited about, which is on the doing more good side, which might not be as relevant to this conversation, but is this notion of impact investing, where these are going to be direct investments in things like community bonds, or green bonds, or microfinance, or, you know, these are not publicly traded for the most part, there isn't an ETF that's going to track these things. But you know, for example, I, I made a, a, an investment in a community bond here in Toronto to a nonprofit that that, you know, they've got a space that, that helps youth who are experiencing homelessness here in Toronto. And they're in the process of buying their building to be able to own the space, to have that consistency and then such that they don't have to pay a mortgage in the future. So this is building financial resilience within a nonprofit uh, here in Toronto called Sketch that really, you know, I'm not doing that for the risk adjusted returns. I'm earning 3% interest, but that's not really why I'm doing it. Here I'm making sort of a direct investment 
in a nonprofit. This would be sort of what I would call like the, you know, crunchy granola style of sustainable investing where, you know, everything else is the secondary market. We can talk about impact, and, but it's more invisible hand type things. Whereas impact investing is really going to be, you know, the, the direct, positive, measurable impact. So, you know, that kind of, I think, gives you an idea of that, that broad spectrum that my job is to help clients understand sort of how this would fit into a portfolio, you know, understand the risk return trade-offs. If you want some of them doing more good stuff, that's fine. There are more trade-offs, not necessarily on the performance side, certainly wasn't in 2020, but certainly when it comes to the risk side, when it comes to liquidity and tax optimization, you know, all those fun things, it does get I, a little bit I, more I think a key thing that, that you're mentioning the there is just the breadth of things that we put under this umbrella inevitably it's going to be very personal. Inevitably, you're not going to find one product that's good for everybody who claims they want to be interested in ESG. And, and I think it's also really important to point out, we're talking about radically different audiences for some of these products as well. So a lot of the growth, for instance, in the US ETF market came because a bunch of either sovereign or uh, you know uh, pension funds or things like that from Europe decided they wanted US market liquidity. And so they moved billions of dollars into bespoke uh, you know, products made here based on uh, MSCI indexes. That version of ESG is what I would call sort of the most watered down version, right? The idea is to minimize tracking error. There's some basic guidelines around things like fossil fuels, controversial weapons, et cetera. There's some classic sort of exclusionary screening stuff going on. But at the end of the day, they're still designed to give you market or market-like beta uh, and also charge something like a beta fee, right? They're not charging 1%. They're charging fractions of that. But but that's just a very narrow corner of what we mean by ESG. And a lot of the more interesting and exciting stuff, as Tim is saying, gets harder and harder to put in a packaged product, right? It's really tough to put microloans and community lending into an ETF. Really just doesn't work. And, and so how do you how do you suggest or how do you help the clients um, and the allocators um, endure the tracking error? So, so today we're talking about the positive tracking error that came from some of the uh, environmental side. Of course, when you get the positive, there's the chance for the negative and for, you know, the envy that would come with any any kind of market cap waiting against whatever benchmark the individual investor has. Any words of advice on how you help the end client understand that before they start? Stick with it as that they go along. That seems like a Tim question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. that's what you get paid for, right? <laughs> I'm, ha- I'm happy to. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's so it. much overlap, and, you know, right? To I mean, me, um, well, and so, so the biggest part of it is managing expectations. You know, honestly, like, you know, we can talk about tracking errors for, for the average investor. You know, they're not looking at that metric. Right. So what they're really looking at is understanding sort of the, the, the risk return, the, you know, sort of the, the, the volatility of the fund. And certainly whenever I see a year like this year with significant outperformance, my number one job is managing expectations saying, don't expect this every year. Right. And in fact, communicating that actually now it means when we're investing money, we're doing it at more expensive prices that, you know, so, so much of this, I think, is about behavioral. Uh, uh, piece, the psychological piece. And then it really is about managing expectations. Now, there is a wide spectrum 
of investors in this space. And, you know, as Dave pointed out, I think a lot of the, the sort of the whales in the market, the big institutions are doing what I would call a small step in the right direction. Better than and nothing. hey, I will yeah. applaud that, you know, two thumbs up. That's great. Is it going to go far enough for me? Definitely not. Right. But you know, there versus my clients that um, want sort of what I would call like a squeaky clean approach, right? Which is obviously going to have much, much more tracking. So to me, it's really about communicating these trade-offs. And the language that I use or sort of how I approach this is I think of a spectrum from what I would call finance first investors, where really what they care about is market rates of return, right? Is adherence to those benchmark? Is that, you know, a, a beta profile? right? Um, and fees, usually very fee conscious as well. And to them, the ESG or the sustainability piece is kind of icing on the cake. Like, hey, if I can get the same thing without investing in, you know, the worst of the worst, hey, okay, great. That's fantastic. I'll do it. But I'm not really willing to sacrifice anything either on the risk or return or even in terms of tracking. All the way through to like, I have like <laughs> clients that are like anarchists, right? That are just like legit, like think that capitalism is so broken that, you know, we would be better off if it collapses. And the way I talk to them about this is to say, well, really what we're doing here is hedging against capitalism enduring. That the last thing a, 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 an anarchist wants to be is like have to retire into a state run facility where they're entirely dependent on the system that they hate. So this is, you know, so for them, they are more than willing to accept uh, lower financial returns, although they haven't had to. My squeaky clean portfolios have done incredible this year, but like, you know, they would accept that. They'll certainly willing to accept track. Tim, how like do you find when you're really working with clients? Cause it sounds like you have a very broad spectrum, but you know, sort of you self, self selected and said, you're not going after the super high net worth folks with the multi-million dollar family office stuff. You're focused on, you know, retail investors who have enough money to invest. Do you find that the folks that are most ESG centric are also most local? Because that's something I've always sort of wondered about when you get to the face of the coal mine there, do things like community development projects start coming to the forefront and all this ETF stuff is for the birds? Well, I mean, I think it's about, it's, it's a balance and everyone's going to be different. And, you know, certainly I have had clients that are super like they really just want to do uh, those sort of so-called impact investments, right? The sort of crunchy granola stuff. But, yeah. you know, the, the supply of product isn't really there yet. We can't really yeah. diversify. And there's some major tax implications. Those things are a pain in the butt yeah. to hold inside of a registered account. So, you know, there are major sacrifices. So part of my job as a financial planner is I think to take those people and hear them and listen to them and understand them and kind of, you know, nudge them towards the center a little bit saying like, hey, is there a way we can do this where you can at least like hold your nose and, you know, let me try to find something that you can at least tolerate. You might not love it, but you can tolerate that'll give you an approximation of market rate returns to then give us, I would say, use that as the anchor of the portfolio to then be able to carve out obviously right. a much larger piece for this impact side of it. Um, obviously it gets a lot more complicated there, right? Um, so, you know, it takes more time. My fees sort of go up. So, you know, it's really going to be each person. It's really about finding where they are. What I find is the vast majority of the market uh, understands the need for compound returns and understands the need for capital appreciation in saving for retirement. 
they just don't want to do it in things that, you know, by, by investing in things that are contrary to how they live their lives. You know, if you're working for an environmental nonprofit or, a, you know, a social justice organization or, you know, if you've dedicated your life to helping people or helping the planet and studying this stuff, you know, the last thing you want to be doing is, is, is really investing yeah. in things that go contrary to that. So, you know, what I would say is that there's a really wide spectrum. I'm super excited, you know, at the super high net worth, like once you go up, you know, some of the, the innovations like direct in yeah. indexing, like I'm so excited for direct indexing, like my goodness, what I could do with that through an ESG lens, it's just going to be super, super awesome. Um, that said, you know, I think what most people are looking for more than anything is simple and easy and efficient. This is where ETFs and the DIY and, you know, there are tools such that we can, you know, automatically rebalance. And, you know, that's why I really, I really sort of nudge people in that direction. Um, understanding that, you know, you do know how to talk, how, how to talk to the sort of the, the, the people really very far on the impact first side of the equation, you know, and really what it comes down to is managing expectations and being transparent that like, it's not perfect. And there's stuff in here you don't love, but what we're going to, we're going to do the best we can given the products that are available today. And what's so exciting for me is to Dave's point that the momentum from everyone else that's coming on board and everything here is that the ecosystem is so much more developed than it was even a year ago, let alone a decade ago when I started in this space that, you know, that now there are so many products across that spectrum that really for me now the challenge is education understanding these different options and sort of the different profiles and then really just getting people i think through the sort of analysis paralysis that you know for for a lot of investors they don't want to sort through this and they don't want this so you know working with an advisor who can identify sort of where they are on that spectrum between impact first and and sort of finance first and then showing them like a few different approaches and building a portfolio that incorporates both the doing less evil and the doing more good and then really having a conversation because you're never going to get it spot on, you know, and really people have these funny little psychological deal breakers where everyone has like this one company that they, they're just like, no, I can't do it, you know, and I can't predict that every time. So, you know, having the transparency, showing people what's inside, helping them understand, letting them know that it's, you know, that for any one product, it's not going to go far enough for some people. It's going to go too far for other people. Um, and then really helping people kind of land at a place where they are comfortable with those trade-offs. So Dave, for you, dealing with, uh, you know, sort of a vast um, uh, array of advisors, what are you seeing as the, as the you know, sort of the, the top hot points, uh, things that they're interested in? And then, and then also, what areas do you think that they need more education or more insight on and, and maybe comment on Boy, those as well for us? that's a broad question. So, you know, there is definitely a class of advisor in the U.S. who is seeing ESG as a huge opportunity for their practices. And um, those are the folks who show up to webinars when we run them. Those are the folks who ask really interesting questions and read all our ESG articles. And for those folks, what they're, to Tim's point about direct or custom indexing, as maybe we're now calling it, um, they're starting to realize that for their highest net worth clients, package products just aren't going to cut it. Um, and so I, I suspect over the next year or two, we're going to see a raft of technology solutions that really solve this problem. The first one in the U.S. that's really gotten some traction recently is from O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. It's called Canvas. Um, there have been a couple articles about that recently. The key thing that, that you get when you move from a packaged product to something that's a little more customized is that exclusion problem. 
getting solved. So many, many high net worth investors are high net worth because they made a really good career choice at some point, right? They're sitting on a pile of Google stock yeah. or they're a senior manager at General Electric. It doesn't matter. They have a huge economic exposure to either a single industry or a single company. Custom indexing lets you just cut that right out or manage it down in an interesting way. And along with that, you get the opportunity usually to make some ESG calls as well. So ESG and a custom indexing model is often actually coming in second. And the first thing that you're getting is that I have a specific single stock problem. So at the high end of the market, that's what we're hearing a lot of advisors talk about. How do I customize this solution to, for something that's going to be really valuable? I would say the second thing is actually about voting. Like there's a lot of discussion in the US about shareholder voting, shareholder advocacy. Uh, and BlackRock has made a huge deal out of this. Uh, we saw State Street sort of follow suit on this. Yeah. And how companies vote their shares has become a really big issue. And it's sort of an interesting piece of marketing, if you think about it, to be cynical about it, right? If you're sitting, if you're BlackRock and you're sitting here on trillions of dollars in assets, you don't really have the option to say, but we're not going to own Chevron because you've got clients that want Chevron. You run energy sector ETFs, right? Of course, you're going to own a lot of Chevron at the end of the day when you're BlackRock. So spinning this to be about how you vote, I think is a really interesting conversation advisors can have with their clients where if they are feeling like, yeah, I kind of just like, as you call them, they're really finance first investors. I think that's, is that what you called it? Finance first um, I, I love that idea that, you know, I'm not willing yeah, to take a lot right. of tracking error. I'm not willing to, you know, make any big bets here. I kind of want market returns. Oh, well, maybe you should make sure that you're getting your beta exposure from somebody who's going to vote to change Chevron, to change Volkswagen, to change sort of these worst defenders, Facebook, whoever it is. Um, I think there's actually some real weight to that. Now, the flip side of that is regulators are a little concerned about how much voting power some of these firms have. And I don't think that's a conversation we're going to ever finish. Yeah. Um, but I but I think that's a real issue. So like, and then after that, but but expand on that, Dave. Expand on that, yeah. Dave, because I don't I don't know that everyone is quite aware of of this issue of these large voting blocks that Vanguard and BlackRock hold. So I think for for the audience, just yeah. Expand so I mean, on it is a, a truth yeah. that if you look at the combined holdings of State Street, Vanguard, and BlackRock, the big three as we call them, um, it, depending on which part of the market you're in, they own something between fifteen and thirty five percent of the voting shares of every company in the world. Now, obviously, more or less depending on which indexes, et cetera, it's more concentrated in large cap US for obvious reasons, less concentrated in say small cap cannabis stocks in Canada. But overall, it's still very, very large voting blocks. And there are pros and cons to that. And regulators and, and more like hand ringers at the Financial Times and things like that um, sort of get a little concerned that somehow this is anti-competitive, that there's going to be collusion. There have been some studies around things like airline ticket pricing and whether or not companies that are in the same index prices competitively, et cetera, et cetera. Most of that is fault or all. It's just sort of garbage. Uh, but the concern still exists. Yeah. The flip side of that is these people do have large amounts of power in their voting blocks. And so when somebody like, say, a State Street starts voting against slates of boards of directors because they don't have enough women on them, it actually matters. Like slates get voted down because in many cases, things like mid caps 
that might be 20% of the voted shares on a proxy. So it, it is a real issue. And even if you're not an ESG investor and you wouldn't call yourself that, there is a difference between whether you choose to get your, say, S&P exposure at State Street or you choose to get it from Schwab. And are there insights that the investors can garner? Like, can they find uh, insights on some of the funds that may take the approach of using their votes in this way in a, in a, in, in order to affect, um, you know, the, their not, ESG not as much will, as you like, you right? Will? The transparency is still not quite there. Now, technically, yes. If you are super interested in how BlackRock voted the Tesla proxy on employee compensation or how BlackRock, <laughs> you know, that you can go find that out. It's not that it's hidden. Uh, but there's not like a really nice, polished, clean report you can hand to your clients every quarter saying, here's how we voted on five hot button issues. I'd love that. Yeah. Yeah. The best the best yeah. I've seen in, in Canada job. is BMO. Um, I, I walked through some of their proxy voting. Uh, I, I feel like they're sort of the standard for that now. And I would just love it, to it, see and that. And really in Europe, it's pretty common, others. right? So if you go to someplace like BNP Paribas, you can get like a 20 page document that says how they will vote on employee compensation or carbon footprint issues. And that's yeah. really helpful. It, so, so we've talked about a couple of tools that that uh, advisors and allocators can use. Um, I think you mentioned um, MSCI, Morningstar, are a couple of areas. I'm pretty sure you, your uh, ETF database probably offers. We ha we have uh, some, some of tools it, but for, even then, for ESG like, and access to data is still a big issue. And as much as I'd love to say, come to my website, we'll give you everything for free. Ain't the truth, right? MSCI and Sustainalytics now Morningstar charge a lot of money for this, and and you know they should, right? If you look to say, I'm most familiar yeah. with the MSCI data set. I've dug deep down into the well on that. And yeah, you're getting like tens of thousands of companies, three or 400 data points. So if you're going to subscribe to MSCI, yeah, you're going to need to pay for that. You're not just going to be able to get that for free. Uh, and that's what powers most of the funds out there are these big data sets, which frankly didn't even exist 10 years ago. So this is really exciting new stuff. So, so how does, how does the advisor or the individual investor empower themselves? Like, can you give um, the listeners some tips on, you know, Tim, you talked about, oh, I use this database, I use that one, but there's some nuance. And so let's yeah. dig in there and, and, and provide some, some tips for everybody. Um, sure. So, I mean, uh, uh, th there are high level data points available for free. Um, and if you want, I can sort of provide the uh, uh, the links to your audience, you know, if you do want to put them in the show notes. Sure. But uh, MSCI does offer the high level company ESG scores, um, as well as the high level ETF scores. Uh, for free, which is fantastic. It's just specific links. You got to know where to click. And then you can just look it up by ticker symbol. Uh, Sustainalytics does offer the individual company scores, again, high level uh, on their own website, as well as through Yahoo Finance, that if you look up a company on Yahoo Finance, there's a little sustainability tab now. Um, and that Morningstar does provide high level uh, ESG rating, risk ratings, as well as uh, carbon footprint analysis for mutual funds and ETFs, that it's basically, you know, Morningstar.ca, I tend to do the Canadian one. And then you look up the, the ETF and there's, uh, I believe it's the analysis tab, um, might be the portfolio tab, they've been shifting it between the two. Um, so those are kind of like the free resources from there, you know, really for advisors, I imagine most of them subscribe to some form of research. And often you can get ESG data available through whether it's Thomson Reuters, whether it's Bloomberg Terminal, um, you know, they've got relationships, 
Um, there's a good chance they already have access to this. Uh, to Dave's point, it just gets complicated quickly, you know, that really it can be sort of, you know, drinking water out of a fire hose when it comes to this, these, these ESG data points. Um, so it, it's going to take some time to get comfortable with it and to understand, you know, sort of how it works, how to look up, which ones are legit. You know, this was a lot of work I did in my thesis, you know, 12 years ago was focusing what are the most financially material ESG risks. So we looked at these, you know, uh, uh, 300 plus different ESG indicators. And really what we found is that it was sector by sector, that at each sector has their very different ones. Um, you know, it was curious, our, uh, uh, our research found that the one most strongly linked to outperformance yep. across the board actually is gender diversity on the board of directors. Now, you know, correlation does not always equal causation. I get that. But at the same time, it's been that way for like over a decade now. You know, I think the data is pretty compelling that the gender diverse yeah. boards of directors uh, do make better decisions. So it's, it's a bit of an interesting thing. So you got to be careful not to get lost in the weeds. Um, there's there's a lot of, of, of sort of meat on the bones when it comes to this ESG data. Um, what I would say is that really for advisors, they need to understand which issues really matter to clients. And the language that I use is that sort of the best teachers in the world, you know, what they do is they show you the sort of tiniest sliver <laughs> of truth at exactly the right moment. So it's not about overwhelming someone and then talking, well, there's this ESG and then this indicator, but not on this indicator and this and that. Um, oh, oh, the voting record for this one. Like it gets complicated. It gets overwhelming. It gets, you know, so, and you just lose people right away. So to me, it's really, you know, about if, if you're, if you're going to be making these decisions yourself, do a little bit of homework, understand the different research providers, find the sort of high level scores that you can trust. From there, you know, sector by sector, get a feel for, you know, a handful of specific issues that you really think matter to that sector. And then on a client by client basis, really like get comfortable playing in the mud and, and in these gray areas of ethics and values. This is where my philosopher training you know, really comes to play that I'm happy well, going in there and let's talk about ethics and morals and, and, you know, and especially with this in, intergenerational there, right? Because transfer. like one of the counters to ESG, which I'm, I mean, I personally am a fairly committed ESG investor myself, but one of the counters to ESG investing as a theme is, wouldn't it be better to maximize your profits and then take the excess profits that you got from bad behavior, gun manufacturers, whatever it is that you didn't like, and then going and doing impact investing with that profit. And yeah, we can have an argument about whether that's correct or incorrect, but you certainly can't say it's not an argument. Yes, that is an argument people can have. Um, and so it does get blisteringly complex. I think one thing advisors can do is, you know, they're going to be more successful the more genuine they are. So asking what they think is relevant is probably a good start. And I know some very skeptical uh, advisors here in the US who are not big buyers of ESG personally, but they're willing to say, hey, you know what? Mm -hmm. There's a risk management component here, particularly around governance that I'm all in on. And they learn that. They learn it cold. They learn examples. They learn which funds are really using governance as a risk management thing that's keeping them out of the next Volkswagen scandal or the next, you know, opioid settlement scandal, et cetera. Um, and ESG factors have been really good at just managing those sort of outsized governance risks 
And some advisors are just saying, yeah, that's my approach to ESG. I'm all over risk management. And if what you're worried about is, you know, diversity on boards, yeah, whatever. I'm not paying that much attention to that. But that can be okay if they know their client base. Yeah, certainly. So now do you guys, go ahead, Tim. Yeah. Or Pierre, sorry. Sorry, I was just going to say that I I think a lot of advisors really want to know you know, the burning question is, is what's in it for me or what's in it for my clients? And, you know, I'm curious to know how much of what's happening in, in the ESG movement is, is the tail wagging the dog and how much of it is actually investors saying, I want this. I, so from our experience on, on the survey side of things, this is almost exclusively being driven by clients. Um, yeah, there are a few advisors that are building ESG practices and trying to be known for that. But the overwhelming majority of the surveys you see, particularly just like surveys of high net worth individuals, say under 50, sort of in that, uh, like like I said, the young Gen X, the older millennial group, um, there many of them are saying it is their number one priority in investing. And that's a huge shift from boomers where it was like 20, 30 percent. So they were even considering ESG. So there has been this phase shift. I'll caveat that by saying that when somebody says that they want something non-economic out of investing, I never believe them, but they're saying it on a survey. So there's some truth to it. Well, and there's right. flows, yeah. and there's there are flows, flows to, to back, back it, up. it up too. And then, and so, yeah, so we're, we are seeing flows. The adoption might be chasing performance. It may not. Um, there is, there is that iterative loop that comes with, you know, once you start to put ESG into play and flows start to follow it, the cost of capital mm-hmm. for those firms that is that are complying and trying and getting better um, it gets reduced, which gives them an advantage. So bad actors have definitely a, a bit of a disadvantage, which then makes them want to uh, modify their behaviors and their approaches. So it, I think it's 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 like a flywheel. It, it started ten years ago, and it's a, you sure. know it's an overnight success this year. Um, what are your thoughts, gentlemen, on, on, um, so, so we're going to put this in action. We've talked about maybe individual stocks we could like at, but when you're looking at allocating to managers, should they go passive? Should they go active? What are your thoughts there? I guess I'll go, I'll, I'll go first. So, um, you know, ahead, active Dave. has traditionally been what you had to do if you wanted to get into the space in the U S folks like Calvert, you know, their, their number of, uh, you know, traditional mutual fund managers in the U S that, that have built quite large practices, uh, around their ESG analysis. I think it's becoming less important because the data has gotten so much better. Um, you know, 10 years ago, I would have said, yeah, if you really are hardcore ESG, you kind of have to go find an active manager. And if you're not an active management guy, that's what you're holding your nose on, right? Because that's how you're going to get that access. Now, I think the data is good enough that, you know, unless you're really going more into the impact zone where you really do need somebody chasing down those less liquid opportunities, I think you can do a lot of good and do a lot of change to your portfolio using pretty cheap beta solutions. So I don't think you have to go active. I think active is where you end up if you're really serious about the impact side. Tim? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, uh, you know, I've always felt really constrained by the options that were on the table. So, you know, to me, this has been the hardest thing of like, oh, it would be great to have, you know, and and for a long time for me, it was about fees that, you know, like for so long, you just had to pay such a premium 
for ESG. And that's just no longer the case. Uh, the fees are lowest on the passive side. But to be clear, when it comes to ESG, you know, there's still an active side to the passive funds, that there is a methodology, that there are screening uh, 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 procedures in place. Right. So to me, it's really much more about alignment and fit with the client's values, that if we can find a passive, low-cost solution that fits the bill and that, like, you know, there's nothing in there that makes them want to puke, then that does, I, I tend to sort of, you know, uh, uh, have a preference in that direction. Uh, we've also started to see a number of funds that use sort of a multi-factor approach, right? Which is interesting because again, it's still passive. It's still, you know, but again, with this specific algorithm. So if you're worried about the growth piece, um, you know, then you might consider having, you know, something that's uh, going to have a, a little bit more of a value tilt in there uh, for a little more diversification or just like a, a different style of investing. Um, I would agree with Dave when it comes to the doing more good side of the equation. And even when it comes to the thematic piece, you know, what I found is that a lot of these sort of actively managed, even the mutual funds with, you know, MERs of like two and a quarter, two and a half percent, which to me is just highway robbery. A lot of them have earned their fees, you know, that really it is shifting so fast that to be ahead of the trends. Uh, what we saw in 2020 was, you know, growth in a lot of what I'm going to call the sexy uh, sectors. So, you know, electric cars popped, you know, solar panels popped, you know, we saw some growth in some of the more, you know, uh, things like energy efficiency or like these renewable energy utilities. But they're always, you know, it was much more subdued compared to, you know, something like the, the electric vehicle theme. So to have someone that's that's following that, that's understanding that, that can anticipate those market dynamics, I think there is the opportunity for active managers to add value in this thematic space. Um, but it's really, I mean, you know, it was really just uh, uh, about two months ago, I think early October, we had our first active ETF on the doing more good side, uh, AGF, which has, I think, the oldest sustainability mutual fund in Canada started in 1991, right? It's absurd. It's been around for, it's about to have its 30th birthday. Um, and they just turned that into an ETF, uh, AGSG is the ticker on that one. So that this was really the first time where I was able to actually get access to an active sort of sustainability themed ETF in Canadian dollars. Um, you know, with with a fee, it's still, I think, 65 basis points, and then probably plus HST that we'll get. So, you know, let's call it 72, 73 basis points, but obviously so much cheaper than even the F-Series mutual fund uh, that was offered before. So, you know, to me, it's one of these things where, again, you know, just like in the normal space, investors are going to have different preferences. Um, I think to me, I do tend to have a bias towards the low fee that, you know, if in doubt, go with the lowest fee option. Tends yeah, to have a friend in Dave. For but, control um, what you can control, you know? <laughs> yeah, but, but like, but like <laughs> well, this is it. And then, you know, but then beyond that, you know, understanding that really there are so many different styles, that's, there are so many different things. In my experience, it really is the values mm -hmm. fit that is kind of most important and the toughest thing to nail. And then, you know, once we have that, if there are multiple options that fit the bill, fantastic, more choices, more voices, you know, I'm going to be happier. But, um, you know, right now we are still limited. Like it really is, 
you know, I'm still like scouring the ETF launches, you know, sort of month to month being like, you know, please, can we get a green energy ETF in Canada? I think there are two of them that have prospectuses now. But, you know, for the longest time to invest in some an ETF with some like Canadian companies like Brookfield Renewable, Interjax, Borlex, these great utilities, renewable energy utilities uh, that are Canadian companies to get exposure to them inside an ETF. I had to convert things into U.S. dollars and, and buy a U.S. dollar ETF. So, you know, it really is. Uh, I think that the, the, the ecosystem is evolving and emerging. And that, you know, I, I, I would say let's give it time to be sort of a fully functioning uh, uh, ETF ecosystem um, before we make any definitive uh, decisions on active. How risk. do you guys recommend that? Uh, just one, one add on uh, question, because Tim touched on a, a, a point where we're expressing these values and we're scouring the universe. Now, how do we balance the one of the 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 uh, granddaddy of them all investment concepts of diversification? Right. The idea that, uh, you know, in an inflationary growth environment, things like oil and gas commodities, uh, they're going to do really well. Since the election, copper stocks yeah. are outperforming the Nasdaq, yep. um, you know, so, so you've got oil and gas stocks that are coming along. So, you know, is there do you see any structural holes? Well, I, I certainly do. When I look at ESG and you just think about the whole sort of inflationary growth trade, which is largely emerging markets and yeah. commodity based is where the structural returns come from. So how do you balance that off? Um, do you just tell the client to tough well, luck? Do, do you try and find replacements and do a better options. job? Please, there, yeah, how do we balance options, that? Right, and, and so like emerging markets is a classic case, right? I know a lot of advisors who are currently looking at the global economy and their global macro call is, look, developed, particularly North American developed, not necessarily where we wanna be. We're not necessarily handling the crisis well, I'll speak for the US. Um, but you look at what's going on in Asia and some other emerging markets, and there seem to be these real pockets of opportunity. So then that becomes the question, well, but if I'm a values-based investor, how do I actually put that together? And I think you have to decide where you're drawing the line. So like in emerging markets, right, there's like one option I think is great is FRDM here in the US, which is the Alpha Architect Life and Liberty Freedom 100. Boy, I hope I got that right. Um, run by Perth Toll. And, you know, that's taking the approach of let's just skip out on countries that we don't want to have anything to do with because, you know, their commitment to human freedom is so bad that the rest of it doesn't matter. Uh, so you end up skipping out on China, for instance, and some other countries, and you sort of reweight the emerging markets into a different basket. The end result is you get emerging markets like performance, but you get to avoid some of the worst offenders, if you will, from a values perspective. Now, does that mean that you're also getting rid of every natural resources company inside those markets? Probably not, because at that point, you're going to end up with a list of 45 stocks that's completely undiversified, that's got all sorts of exogenous exposures you weren't planning on. So I do think that there is a balance there and you sort of have to pick your battles. Yeah, I, I I wanted to yeah. uh, come back. I, I, I know so far we've been talking about, you know, uh, opportunities and returns, but I wanted to come back to something that you said earlier, Dave, which was um, with regards to, for example, advisors who haven't really jumped on board ESG for ESG's sake, and that was the risk management angle, um, in particular governance. And what are some of the? Can you elaborate more on that in terms of what the what's in it for? investors, advisors listening to this uh, as to how ESG um, 
improves on one side governance and and reduces risk, but also in terms of how, and, and then and then sort of secondary to that, also how um, ESG is becoming. Uh, an important factor in in capital markets, and for example, cost of capital. Sure. So, but so, uh, but, so fundamentally, but, yeah. this is just about figuring out whether or not a data point is serial co- serially correlated, right? Because we, if it's not, we don't care about it, right? We want our we want the data we look at to have some impact. So, therefore, we hope that the past looks something like the future. It turns out one of the strongest right. signals in, in the sort of four or five hundred data points we collect around ESG are things around core good behavior as a corporate citizen. Things like, are you a habitual regulatory offender who is paying fines year after year because you're not willing to play by the rules? Have you run afoul of anti-bribery you know, issues? Do you have any of your you know, senior staff under constant indictment? Like These seem like pretty obvious things, but it turns out they're a little bit difficult to measure. And until really the last four or five years, you couldn't say that you had a comprehensive data set on global large cap to be able to say these 45 companies are jerks, so we shouldn't be owning them. It turns out not owning those 45 companies that yeah. are jerks really makes a difference in terms of portfolios because you avoid lawsuits, you avoid government shutdowns, particularly in Europe. European companies that run afoul of core governance stuff tend to get crushed. The markets don't like them. They get thrown out of European portfolios, partially because Europe is much deeper in their adoption of ESG than we are in the U.S. So there's a bit of a self-reinforcing uh, you know, wheel here. I mean, Mike, you call it a flywheel. I think around governance, that's particularly true. Bad actors around governance issues tend to get crushed, particularly in Europe. Uh, and, then, and then now in terms of um, the governance and like you know, we're seeing things like where where boards are adding uh, adding women uh, in order to sort of be included, and uh, not only to have inclusion of women in their boards, but to be included in ratings. And and so how does that? That's where I guess where I was going earlier with the tail wagging the dog is how much of you know how much of um, the ESG movement is is about doing good versus sounding good. Yep. Yeah. I can I can speak to that. Yeah. So uh, okay. So a couple couple different things there. You know, I think that you've identified. You know, and and I don't know what to call it on the diversity side of it. You know, diversity washing, but certainly on the green side with greenwashing. You know, and really this is the fundamental question you know, is how much of it is sort of greenwashing versus how much of it is financially material. Now, you know, really, here's here's where I come from, because I think a lot of these conversations, certainly in the industry, judging from your audience, the, 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 the worldview that people are going to come with is that, you know, we have the economy, we have the stock market, the stock market is perfectly efficient, everything's working great, we've made all this money, everything's fantastic. You know, and now, you know, ESG, oh, you're coming in, you're trying to muck it up, you're trying to change things. I have to, you know, relearn all these things that, you know, I've uh, over the past 30 years have become really standard. Whereas, you know, I'm coming in and my clients are coming in from a very different perspective, which is that capitalism is broken. Yeah. That right now in the recovery, you know, we're seeing this K-shaped economic recovery where some people are so much better off than they were at the start of the pandemic. Whereas, you know, lineups at food banks are longer than they have ever been in the wealthiest countries. 
You know, specifically in the U.S. is where this is worst. Um, you know, Amazon, with one of the most profitable companies, look at the wealth of Jeff Bezos at the top, whereas the injury rates and the sickness rates of factory workers, and we're now seeing data showing up that when Amazon puts a factory in a town, it depresses all of the wages within that industry, within that town, that all factory workers end up with suppressed rates. Um, the, the, and then climate change as a major systemic issue that, you know, the Bank of Canada has come out with a report saying that if we don't take climate change seriously, that um, up to 45% of Canada's GDP is at risk in the year 2100, mm -hmm. 45% of our GDP. And so, you know, really, I'm coming at it from a place where like capitalism in the stock market right now is not working for the vast majority of people in our society. It is certainly not working for the planet itself. If we continue on this path where, you know, really it is about, you know, strictly finance first, and we're going to completely ignore social and environmental issues, you know, this can't continue. So I think the reason why, to Dave's point, that all of these, you know, I think the biggest movers, the biggest whales are all these institutions and all these pension funds, these institutional advisors that they have a mandate. They are what we call universal investors, where like their biggest worry is the global economy as a system. And they are in this for the long term, for, you know, in perpetuity. So, you know, really, it's like, to me, it's like, these are the changes that are absolutely necessary. If we want to talk about having a fully functional economy, you know, over the next 50, 100 years, that we need to incorporate environmental, social and governance, you know, really across the board, that this is going to impact everything. And this is the macro change, the shift that we're seeing now. Because, you know, in the crash of 2007 or 2008, 2009, in the comeback, all this stuff got thrown on the back burner right? Like nobody cared about these issues at all. Whereas to Dave's point, it started at the end of last year and the first two months of this year, like remember those fires in Australia and how climate change was on top of everyone's mind. And then for the last year, we've seen a systemic risk that, you know, without a healthy population, there is no economy, right? That now all of a sudden we are seeing governments, we are seeing central banks, you know, stepping in and saying, no, what is crucial to our economy is social environmental governance, broadly. Now, obviously, as that's affecting the stock market, the immediate impact right now we're seeing is with carbon pricing. This is, I would say, the first externality that is immediately being internalized here in Canada. We're going to have $170 per ton uh, of CO2 in 2030. I expect in the US, it's still, I'm going to hold my breath until January 20th, the inauguration, right? We're not going through that. But, you know, assuming it looks likely that they're going to be moving in this direction that we are witnessing a dramatic repricing of assets in the stock market, accounting for these previously externalized, ignored issues. So to me, it's like, you know, as an investor, as an allocator, you know, what's at stake here, Pierre? Well, really, it's about yeah. your portfolio and protecting that. Um, you know, for an advisor, this is about your practice. Because if you, like, I can't tell you how many clients have come to me because they went to their advisor and their advisor laughed at them, mocked them, made them feel horrible by bringing these things up. And then to Dave's point, all the surveys are showing that, you know, it's at more than half of investors when asked want these types of things. When you say that you don't have to sacrifice returns, that the returns are comparable, so, yeah, like that number jumps up yeah. to like mm -hmm. high 70s, right? Especially among the lower, right? And then, but when I look at the, the question of how many people are actually doing well, it, 
that number is and, very and low. Access Even with the search right? that we see. I mean, many, many investors are limited in terms of where they can access. In the U.S., most retail investors, their only real investments are in their retirement plans, not in some taxable account that they can trade through a brokerage. And if you're in a retirement plan, at least in the U.S., you've got very limited choices. Um, now, many retirement plans have included mutual funds that have ESG components to them for years, but a lot of them haven't. So I think that access issue remains a huge one. Yeah, I I, I was just going to I just wanted to add that, you know, that in terms, you know, the, the term sustainable or sustainability is really I, I, I'm getting the feeling that it's really widely misunderstood in terms of what that means and that there's really actually like what I what I sure. see is that there's actually a line in the sand being that's drawn with that word. And, and you know, on one side is what's unsustainable, unsustainable behavior, unsustainable business practice, unsustainable uh, energy production, unsustainable, whatever. And on the other side is, is what is sustainable in the long term. And so I, I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation, by the way, but you know, so I've been really listening about cool. it, listening to it. And, and I, I, like, so that I think is at the, the center of it is the term, is the term itself and understanding what right. sustainable means and, and how it's used how the term is used and, and uh, it's not just, you know, about, you know, endlessly available natural gas uh, or, or endlessly available electrical power from solar. Uh, it's really about behavior more than anything else and what's sustainable and what's unsustainable behavior. So thank you. I just wanted to just add to that conversation because I think. And we all want the same yeah. thing, right? Like we want a sustainable economic system, right? We all want sustainable returns on our investments. Like that's that's at the end of the day what we want. Um, you know, in my mind, it's just been unfortunate that sort of the the way the economy was set up, however long ago, like it really didn't consider a lot of these social and environmental issues. And that's what really is changing now that we actually have more data now. Uh, such that we can make more efficient decisions. And, you know, and Pierre, to your point, you know, about, about sort of commodities and that, that, yeah, I think fossil fuels is a huge problem for a lot of people right now. Um, as much as the environmental side, I think the, the, the governance side, to Dave's point, that, you know, the amount of money and the lobbying that's been spent sort of delaying action and misinforming, like there are a lot of parallels between tobacco and, and there are lawsuits coming out now that are, you know, attempting to expose that. So that's why a lot of people, you know, it's a real thumbs down. But on the, the material side, I mean, there is such a need for rare earth metals and minerals and like in a, a clean energy transition you know there is going to be a huge need for a lot of, of raw goods and commodities and you know i just feel that canada we're in such a position to be able to capitalize on it where we have access to this and we can do it in a clean way and if these companies are following esg best standards and looking after people and looking after the planet and really doing that and, you know, there's so much opportunity there. Unfortunately, I think that for a lot of people in the industry, it has become a political issue, right? And this is an issue where they often find themselves, I think, on the wrong side of science, especially when it comes to, to climate change. 
and that, you know, it invokes a lot of feelings. And I would argue here in Canada that there is still, there remains a negative bias against ESG. A lot of people dismiss it as sort of BS and like, ah, it's for the hippies and, you know, fairy dust <laughs> and unicorn farts and, you know, that type of thing. And I think that, you know, really what I'm seeing here is that, you know, it's, it's, it's too bad because I think if people, this, this is the way forward as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, it's, it's been so nice for me to have this year, you know, 2020 really kind of have the vindication that a lot of things that I've been talking about for, you know, over a decade now, you know, are really starting to come not only into public consciousness on the psychological side, but into market dynamic and pricing, like prices have shifted. Yeah, so, I, I want, sorry, I just, sorry, Mike, I just wanted yeah, to please. add that, that. I, you know, I read something interesting this week, which was from uh, earlier this year from uh, Professor uh, Dan O'Darren from NYU. And uh, it was just a, a point that he made about uh, that it was the 50th anniversary. I'm just going to read it as the 50th anniversary of one of the most influential opinion pieces in media history, where Milton Friedman argued that the focus of a company should be profitability, not social good. There have been many retrospective, retrospectives published in the last week with the primary intent of showing how far the business world has moved away from Friedman's views. And I, I think, you know, it speaks to, I, I guess I would say that Milton Friedman's work is one of the reasons why so many people feel that, you know, it's, this is a lot of fluff. Yeah, I think that um, what we've learned in 50 years right? is that uh, society and economics are much more tightly tied than we used to think they were. Um, and that largely has to do with the dissolution of social safety nets in most of the developed world, right? The reality is we can no longer say that this company can be as profitable as it wants to be and have no impact on society. And society, when they get annoyed at that, will have no impact on the value of that company. What we're seeing is the inversion of that society, i.e. those of us with money to invest, are starting to vote with our wallets enough that it's starting to impact these companies. Otherwise, we wouldn't have greenwashing scandals. We wouldn't be talking about whether or not people are buying carbon offsets and un, you know already protected world you know forests and things like that. The reason we're having those conversations is because it does matter, and society has pushed back. Have you seen yeah. <clears throat> of the individuals who? Um, are ESG investors? Do you see them taking up that same um, uh, behavior in their own uh, personal lives? What what I find is interesting is the cognitive dissonance that that is is in some of these environments at times. You mentioned one batteries and rare earths and where they come from and how their mind uh, are potential atrocities and how you want to look at it, the disposal of the battery, uh, all of those types of things. Don't clearly put a battery-operated car that much further ahead. What would be far more uh, beneficial is if people owned one car. You know, our family has one car, not three cars, and that's a, that's a choice. It is a battery-operated car, but at the, at the same fair, time, island, I do think but... that there is a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a very small island. Yes, <laughs> come on, don't pull the curtain back right away. It's the no, big I, reveal I think for your later. point is very well taken. Uh, is that these are decisions no. that are not made in a vacuum, yeah. right? And like, I'm I'm the same way, right? I have one, yeah. you know, ICE car, and I have a Tesla, and you know, I we went through that math. It's like, okay, you have to drive a Tesla for a hundred thousand miles for it to actually sort of earn back all of its carbon payments or, I mean, people have measurements on that, but like 
it's a real issue. And I, mm-hmm. I think I think it's worth bringing yeah. up, Mike. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, again, to me, it's it's something that I think the industry needs to get better at is having thematic funds that incorporate the ESG space. Right. Because, you know, a company like Tesla, great example, you know, ESG Darlene in a number of portfolios, uh, their social score yeah. is atrocious the way they treat employees. Right. They're very, very high risk, very poor labor force management there. So, you know, it's it's not going to be perfect. And I think that one thing that, that, so in terms of my clients and, you know, me and my life, certainly just about all of my clients have uh, uh, incorporated this decision-making throughout their life in terms of their purchasing, in terms of their voting, in terms of their volunteer time or donations. And it's often investing is like the last piece of that puzzle because it's been the hardest, right? So I've met a lot of clients that have come to me saying, Tim, I've tried to divest from fossil fuels for, you know, 30 years and you're the first person that now, you know, is actually able to help me do that in, in an efficient manner. Um, so, you know, I think for a lot of people, this is the sort of one of the last pieces. But the other piece is that inherently, like, we're all hypocrites, like in the environmental <laughs> space. Like, I, I eat food that has a carbon footprint. <laughs> you know, I'm broadcasting right now and, you know, I have computers and we do this. There is no such thing as a perfectly sustainable person or anything like that. But, you know, that doesn't prevent us from fighting for the changes we want to see in the world. Um, you know, I often joke about people, how many people do I know who hate taxes, you know, where they'll just they'll fight against any form of tax. And it's like, but of course, they drive on the roads. And, you know, here in Canada, they use uh, uh, hospitals and their kids go to public schools and they use those services that, you know, we're all hypocrites. Nobody is perfect. And that to me, it's just about how can we sort of cl- most closely align things for both ethical reasons. For a lot of people, it is ethics first. You know, to the point Dave said before that, oh, you should just invest and, you know, take the returns and give it, you know, and that's, that's you know, like asking someone who's kosher, like, oh, you should just, you know, like, eat, um, you know, eat the pig and don't worry about it. And then we'll just over here, we'll <laughs> donate money over there. Like, no, for yeah. a lot of people, like, this is just a hard no, yeah. like they just won't invest otherwise. You know, and then for everyone else, like if you are on the finance first, you know, then what you need to recognize is that, that things are changing right now. And, you know, I would point back to a lot of the, the evolutions in valuations around branding and how for a long time markets didn't really value a company's brand, you know, and then Warren Buffett comes along and all of a sudden, you know, the Cokes and the, you know, McDonald's and the, the brand names all of a sudden now trade at a premium because of that. And that's considered very, very rational. Uh, in the same way, we're just gathering more information now um, a- about these companies and, you know, really letting people make the decision for themselves. Everyone's going to draw the line somewhere, you know, different along that spectrum. And that's a very, very personal decision. I don't think we should judge people based on where they've decided to draw that line. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think that that in, in my opinion, you know, and really the I would say the, the uphill battle that I've been against for 10, 12 years now is that, you know, so many people in the industry are just very quick to dismiss it based on politics, um, you know, and and instincts or intuition that they think these things are BS or going to underperform. And that now, you know, we have data and we have the information to show that actually, you know, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, You know, it's data driven. It's not perfect, you know, but it is getting a lot better. 
And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, this we're in the second inning yeah, of this the, transition. ESG. So, you know, there's still a lot of change to happen. There's still a lot of assets, Dave, you know, in terms of the, yeah. you know, overall slice yeah. of the pie. You know, if this thing does continue, you know, there's a lot and of there's, the ESG integration seems to me to be sort of the most parsimonious index based way that you might. You know, just I would like everyone to be more cognizant of the the ESG. And so, if you're an oil company, I'm going to drive a car. I, I have gasoline in the car. I would like you to be thoughtful about the decisions you're making, accountable for some of the environmental impact that you're having. And 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 if you do so, then I would I would certainly um, you know move to own that company and use that company. I've, I've one other thing I want to bounce off of you guys too is what what do you what tax should or how should the developed markets help the emerging markets? Um, how should they help in, in helping them foster the growth? I mean, carbon and, and fossil fuels have, fo have fostered a massive amount of growth for the developed market. And we were not, we uh, in, in the role, we, uh, the Western world wasn't accountable for the environmental damages over time and was able to build um, an economy based on that. And now we're sort of saying, okay, we're going to deprive some of the emerging markets or have a higher cost for them. How should we think about that? How might we think about um, assisting with some of that given the experience that the developed ha world has had? Oof, that's a big one. I mean, <laughs> you know, that, that starts to get into like, you know, <laughs> I thought we'd get to <laughs> philosophy. Yeah, like, philosopher and me is going. Way to go. No, I... <laughs> It was the last thing I, I, I had it, to talk it's, about. It's, it's an. I, I had yeah, something ahead, I wanted to ask. Ahead. As well. Go ahead, Pierre. Maybe yours is easier go, to well, answer. They want to pass on that one, so they want to no, pass no, no, on no. that one. <laughs> well, I can. So, let, I can address it. I can. Yeah, I, can I got go, it two hours. Let me go right. a little quick, like, and then Pierre, what I got. Uh, love to hear your question, <laughs> but that yeah. And no uh, less, let me no let me do two and a half minutes. Because uh, I get a lot of people that are like, you know, as soon as I bring up climate change as a risk or anything, they're like, well, yeah, but China. Right. Well, China, Canada's not going to do anywhere, you know, 1.6%. Oh, China. So to me, there is a responsibility here, you know, and really it comes down to per capita emissions, I think is sort of the fairest way to be able to parse this out. And so, you know, I think there is some, some responsibility here. Um, uh, uh, understanding that we do need to be sort of first movers when it comes to a lot of these issues. The big issue I have, and this would, I think, hopefully be part of Dave's two-hour uh, seminar on this, but is that, you know, what really disheartens me is this political shift I've seen towards individualism and protectionism. You know, whether it's America first, whether it's Canada first, it's like, what's in it for me? What's, you know, my best interest? And, you know, sort of screw everybody else. And, you know, the problem is that when it comes to a lot of these systemic issues, uh, these are global problems. Right. So we can talk about the pandemic and, you know, the sort of lack of global coordination early on and how that hurt us. Uh, and certainly we can talk about climate change and how this is a global situation. And if the emerging markets don't, you know, solve it at the same time that we do, then, you know, it really doesn't matter too much. So, you know, I think that that unfortunately, you know, what we need more than anything are global solutions. And, you know, in my mind, you know, governing bodies and to imp to have things like, for example, you know, carbon tariffs as part of the uh, WTO agreements, you know, is, is I think where likely things are going to be headed. The unfortunate part is that right now our politics is so against that, 
that it almost seems impossible that we would have, you know, sort of a, a global taxation and redistribution scheme, something like that. So, you know, I think that's a huge, huge, huge issue. I think that for us as investors, you know, let's sort of clean up our own backyard first. Um, and really, you know, I think push our companies to the absolute highest standards. Um, and then, you know, I think that there does need to be a, a I'll, I'll bigger just say conversation that the, with this. On one of the scale. advantages that some emerging markets have is that they're not individualistic democracies. And so if we look at China, which I'm not trying to be a bolster of China here, there are all sorts of huge ESG issues with investing in China at all. But if all you cared about was carbon footprint, I actually believe that China will hit its 2030 goals way more than I believe anything in the Paris Accords, because China can actually do it, right? They can simply mandate that they are going to shut down coal plants and turn on wind farms and fix the parts of their electrical grid that won't let them do that now. Um, and they recognize that their economy is going to be a huge exporter of clean tech. They already are a huge exporter of clean tech. And that the faster they accelerate that by putting government spending behind it, you know, the faster that'll happen. I mean, China spends 1% of its GDP on clean energy a year, right? That makes it like one of the largest per capita distributions of money into clean energy research in the world. They're not doing that just because they're good corporate, good, uh, you know, global citizens. There are all sorts of reasons they're not good global citizens. They're doing it because their economy is going to be driven by that for the next 25 years. Yeah. Fabulous. You guys <laughs> crushed that. What's, what's I got another two hours. <laughs> I don't understand the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go so ahead, Dave, Dave. You had something. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, just going back to what you said earlier about European companies uh, being crushed when when they're big offenders, and um, I, it struck me that that um, like if you're an investor, just you know whether you're ESG or not, it just makes it. it is there a time in the future where Companies that go on being offenders, uh, that 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 go on not conforming or not fitting into the ESG movement somehow, um, isn't there a time in the future where those companies' valuations get crushed the same way you you said European companies get crushed? I mean, they're they're just that they're further along in the ESG adoption curve. Um, yeah, I. When we get there, isn't there a time in the future where companies that are repeat offenders uh, on, on any of those fronts get punished. And as investors, if you own those companies, don't you get punished along with yeah. them for ignoring I mean, Henry Fernandez, ESG? the leader of MSCI, basically made this point a couple of years ago when they were launching yeah. ESG 101, which is sort of their ETF website. Um, they were making the point that it's like, like it does, really makes no difference whether or not you believe in any of this. The market does. And therefore, if you just like stand in the middle of the road, because you don't yeah. believe it, you're going to get run over because ESG is going to determine how capital flow moves. Right? And so, yeah, I mean, have have fun trying to float a super cheap investment grade tobacco bond right now. I mean, it's like those things don't exist, right? I mean, we've got multi-billion dollar opioid <laughs> settlements going on. Those companies are not going, doing particularly well in their secondary offerings to pay off those, those fines, right? So, it is already happening. I think it, we're a little ways away from, you know, truly ostracizing companies out of the capital markets, but you already see it in the cost of capital. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The, I mean, it is, it, you're in a, a, what I would describe as a disequilibrium from an ESG perspective. And so as uh, investor preferences change around that disequilibrium, that disequilibrium drives 
capital from bad actors to good actors. At some point in the future, you, you will reach a new equilibrium, which will, you know, sort of have a much less of an impact and you will have better actors and better behavior across the board. But at, at the moment, you know, it would, it would seem at least that, that the, this is still in sort of the, you know, discovery, publication, early adoption, maybe early majority, you know, maybe early adoption to early majority for the vast majority of assets. So there, you know, there's lots, lots of room before we yep. get to an equilibrium yep. state yep. on it. It's kind of like deciding not to wear a mask or deciding that wearing a mask is some kind of bad political statement. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, but this is, you know, I'll be well, honest. there's a grenade. Having dealt with <laughs> specifically on climate change, right? Again, I'll come back to this sort of like anti-science rhetoric that does tend to be more prevalent, I would say, in uh, uh, conservative circles. Although there's this weird branch of the progressive side that I've seen with people that are very progressive and very much on the sort of holistic side that have now kind of latched on to the anti-science with vaccinations and things like that. But, you know, to me, it really is, you know, are we going to listen to our scientists or not? And we've seen with COVID, you know, the, the difference between countries and politicians that listen to scientists and those that didn't. And that, you know, I, I think the same result is going to happen specifically around climate change um, and uh, 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 income inequality. That, you know, a lot of voices, very, very important, very well-informed voices are uh, either going unheard or actively being silenced within this space. So I think there's, there's a huge danger there. You know, power structures exist. Uh, you know, privilege, I think, is a really huge conversation in the financial industry and, and, and sort of what that means. And I think to me, it's the, the hard part is that it's just so awkward for a lot of advisors to open up the door to these issues. They've just really been trained to not want to talk to their clients uh, about politics and about some of these more mm -hmm. subjective things. And now with the history, it's kind of forcing the issue a little bit. So, you know, I think that, that within the industry, people are going to have to get a little more comfortable, you know, playing in the weeds and in the and in the, you know, this, the, the value side and not judging people, you know, if they are being a little hypocritical and, you know, certainly not trying to talk people out of things, uh, but instead really engaging in, in a, an exercise of listening and understanding uh, priorities and values and what's really important. And, you know, I'll say this, that when I do have a tough conversation with a client about this stuff, but they come out of it feeling heard and feeling acknowledged and that, you know, we've come up with a solution that at least works for them for now, that they're a client for life. Like the trust that I've built there by going there and having that tough conversation means that, you know, really there is a bond there that, you know, I think of a, a lot of advisors would yeah, really be assets. quite jealous of from a business perspective. Dave, what about you? What, what about uh, final thoughts for you, yeah. Dave? What, what do you got? What, what's the what's the well? ESG you know, I, I think that uh, you know one just one comment on on your sort of thought about you know what we've learned about COVID and the anti science. You know, the difference is that you can't shut your borders for climate change, right? We're we're facing that as a global problem, whether we want to or not. Um, and and I think we're starting to become global investors, whether we want to or not. I mean, home bias is slowly edging out. Even, you know, and you know, Canada and the U.S. have some of the worst home biases of any population in the developed world. But we're getting a little bit better at that. Um, but mostly, if you're an advisor and you're approaching this space, this is an opportunity. I mean, as Tim was saying, this is an opportunity to never lose a client again. Because if you put somebody in a customized portfolio that represents their values and they understand the trade-offs they've made. That's sticky money. 
right? <laughs> That's very sticky money. And it's way, yeah. way stickier than if all you're doing is sitting there trying to find the next hot hand active manager, because you're going to be wrong. And then you lose that client. But if you're down a percent or two versus a broad benchmark, because you made certain values based calls, those can be positive conversations with the client because you can talk about what you avoided. I think there's some pretty significant research out there on the fact that you're far more likely to stick with an investment uh, if it identifies specifically with your values. If you've made a decision based on values versus uh, performance, you have a much higher level of discipline. So, yeah, I mean that that's there's that word that comes to mind again: a portfolio that you can sustain, that you can sustain ownership of. Hundred percent. Yeah. That would help you to avoid the big behavioral mistakes as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think we saw that data, Dave, you you might know this, but my understanding is that we're in March that we did see significant outflows in a lot of the sort of standard funds, but the yeah. ESG funds were surprisingly sticky in the lack of outflows. And I think actually like every month there were still inflows in March that, you know, yeah. a lot of those investors just Well, I mean, it, the, the performance measure, you struck the, your measurement period at the end of that quarter, which unfortunately a lot of, you know, quarters don't mean anything except we all still mark them, right? So a lot of people put out their quarterly reports at the end of March, or they did their even better if they did their rebalance at the end of March, they were just gosh darn heroes, right? Because what were you doing then? You were you know, selling a bunch of bonds and buying a bunch of equity at the bottom. And if you happen to be doing that in anything that even smelled like ESG, you probably crushed a buy and hold strategy. So it was a very good time for advisors yeah. who had a story and had clients stick to their knitting. Agreed. Yep. Well, that was pretty awesome conversation, gentlemen. That was. Thank really you for having us. I really appreciated your time and... Uh, and um, your expertise.